Welcome to Sandstone Community Church Online. It is a pleasure to have you with us today. It is a pleasure because we do know that God has brought you today to hear His Word, to be encouraged and led by Him uh, through the Scriptures as well. So we do pray that our time, your time with us will be profitable for you and it will also bring glory to His name as you become more like Jesus. And if that's your first time watching this uh, video from us, we do pray that you will be blessed and then if you want to touch base with us, feel free to contact us via Facebook or through any of the contact details in our homepage as well. Now let me pray before we start our service. Father, in Jesus' name, we want to thank you for the beautiful day, for your blessing and for your direction upon our lives. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who are watching me at this very moment. May this uh, moment of praise, our adoration through songs and also through uh, hearing from you through the scriptures, may they be encouraged and empowered to live the life that Christ has prepared for them to live. So we pray a special blessing upon those who are watching us for the first time. May they also find a source of encouragement in the words that you've uh, spoken in the word. And we pray, Lord, that as we seek to honor your name, that you, Father, you would be glorified and that our lives would be transformed. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Feel free to stand if you'd like to. Praise my soul, the King of Heaven, to His feet thy tribute bring, ransom
chapter 1 to verse 3, the first, the first section of Ephesians, which focuses very much on the identity of the Christian life, who you are as a Christian. And now we are stepping into this second half of the letter that is going to focus on the lifestyle of the Christian. So this message here is literally the rubber hitting the road. This message is the very first direct application of the Apostle Paul or what should like look like someone who is trying to live the Christian life. So this section is a section as we've just seen of 16 verses and the message I've called unity in diversity and I divide it into two parts. Today we're going to deal with verse 1, from verse 1 to verse 6. Next week we go from verse 7 to verse 16. I really 
I, I thought it was impossible for me to do justice to the passage if I was to preach um, the whole thing in one go. So today I'm going to be focusing a little bit more on the unity bit. Okay, so it's unity in diversity. Today I'll be focusing on a unity bit. Next week I'm going to be focusing on a diversity bit. Now the first thing I want to highlight to you is that this section starts with the summary of the book of Ephesians. Remember, I've been saying identity that changes lifestyle. Who you are should inform the way you live. Now, you notice that verse 1 of chapter 4 is literally a summary of that because Paul starts by saying, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk, urge you to have a lifestyle, to live in such a way, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul is saying, this is who you are, this is your calling, therefore walk or live in a way that it is worthy of that. So this verse 1, in a way, is the introduction to the section we're going to be studying, verse 1 to verse 16, but it's also an introduction to the rest of the book. And could also be seen as a sort of a summary of the book of Ephesians. So if you want to find out what the book of Ephesians is all about, you read this verse 1 and you understand. It's a plea of a pastor to his people saying, walk, live in a way, have a lifestyle that it is in line with who you are. That it is in line with the calling that it is upon your life. Now, the next few verses, the next few chapters, Paul is going to do that. As he applies the points that he drew from chapter 1 to verse 3, he wants to see his people living in a way that glorifies Jesus. So he's going to do that. He's going to, all the way from verse, from chapter 4 to chapter 6, he's going to, pour, he's going to paint some pictures for you. Some of those pictures are going to be drawn from the first three chapters. Some of them are their new pictures. And he's going to say, see, this is who you are. This is the picture of the Christian life. This is your identity. And he's saying, based on that identity, these are the fruit. The fruit that I expect you to show. And today, as I just highlighted, the, the, the issue is unity. And I find, it, I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating that the first thing that the Apostle Paul finds the need to address is the issue of unity. Now I have a theory. My theory is this. I think the Apostle Paul decided to address the issue of unity first because it is one of the first issues that the church had to face and always has to face in congregations. If you go back to the book of Acts, which is when the church started, the Holy Spirit falls and the people of God, they're brought back to life. They're born again when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, fills them, and now they are the church of the living God, birthed through the Spirit. And you, as you read from chapter 1 to verse 4, you see an amazing picture. One of those amazing traits that you can see that it is a unity like no other. 
not just a unity, but a sense of desiring to be with one another, a sense of protecting one another, caring for one another, loving one another, encouraging one another, exhorting one another. Some people look back to those first chapters of Acts as the model of how, how should the church live? How, how, what is the, the, the framework we should have for a church that we should, we should base our lives on? They say, go back to the very beginning of the book of Acts. You will know. But not until you get to chapter 5 and 6, you start to have a few problems there. And the first problem that happens, of course, is Ananias and Sapphira. They... Um, they, they try to lie to the Holy Spirit. But the very first problem that threatens to, to attack the whole church and cause a crack in the church actually comes on chapter, on chapter 6. When there is a problem with the distribution of the money to the widows. And what happens is the widows that have a, a Greek origin start to be overlooked just because the church started to grow so big that the apostles were finding it difficult to keep up with everything. But for some reason, the, the, the widows with a Hebrew background were still receiving the money, but the widows from the, a Greek background were, weren't. And then a com, the, the book of Acts describes a, a complaint arise, arose among them. So you see that the very first issue that the church has to deal as a whole, as a community that was threatening to crack the church was an issue around unity. That's why I believe Paul makes it as one of his targets to talk about unity. But not just that. If you fast forward through the book of Acts and you get to chapter 20, you see that Paul planted the church in Ephesus. And then once he is farewelling them, he's saying, Guys, I'm no longer going to see you. Thank you very much for you uh, blessing me. And he wants to exhort the church and highlight a few things to the church. He says that among them, there are wolves. They're going to arise and they're going to try to, to tear the, the flock apart, drawing disciples to themselves. So Paul knew that there was a very imminent issue that was going to threaten the unity of the church. So that's why I also believe the very first reason why Paul decided to talk about unity in a letter to the Ephesians was because unity is a very problematic... If you just look at the church around as a whole, right? We, we are divided in many ways. Now, I'm going to talk about... Not all divisions are bad. I'm going to talk about it soon. But as a whole, you see divisions happening all the time in churches. So unity is a big issue. We need to talk about unity. But at the same time, unity is a very real threat to every single local congregation. And Paul knew that that was the case in Ephesians. And that is also the case in Sandstone Community Church. We should always be aware that unity is one step away from being broken. Now, just before we jump into the text and find out, okay, so what, what is Paul going to say is your identity? And therefore, you should live in light of that identity in order to preserve unity. We're going to get to that. But before I go to that point, I just want to say, yeah, not, not all divisions are bad divisions. Okay? Divisions sometimes are good. Sometimes they're actually necessary. We see, for example, the same apostle, the apostle Paul, who is here pleading for unity in the letter to the Ephesians. 
On another letter, which is a letter to the Corinthians, when he gets to chapter 11, he says this. For, and he's talking about communion here, okay? He says this. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, and he's talking about communion especially, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So divisions are not necessarily bad. See, you see that? Paul says it must be divisions among you so that those who are genuine may be recognized. So divisions are not necessarily bad. So what kind of division is bad? We're going to get to that. And Jesus, when he comes to his ministry, he says that he says this, Do not think, in Matthew 10, uh, verse 34, Do not think that I come to bring peace to the earth. I, have come to bring, I haven't come to bring peace, but the sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against, his, against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, divisions are not necessarily bad. I just want to include that disclaimer here. But that, that type of division that we're going to talk about is bad. The type of division that's not bad is the division that is caused by the truth of Jesus. See? When Jesus brings truth, division is going to take place. There is no way. Because when truth is brought into the mix and people who react against that truth, they are going to naturally react and they're going to be distancing themselves from the truth. So division is happening, but happens because of the truth. Not because, hopefully, the way you say the truth. Not, hopefully, because of other things rather than the truth. But when it comes to preserving unity, how do we do that? What is this new lifestyle that it is required of us to stay united? And that's my, I believe, the first point that Paul brings to the table is that the new lifestyle of unity... Is a new lifestyle of unity through peace that is kept by the exercise of new virtues. Paul expects a new life in his churches. He expects a new lifestyle of unity that happens through peace. And that is kept by the exercise of new virtues. Have a look in verse, from verse 2 to verse 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul is saying that he expects to see their churches eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's saying the lifestyle, the Christian lifestyle of a Christian, the lifestyle of a Christian community is very simple. It's, an, it's a lifestyle of unity that it is kept through peace. And he's saying, he includes something that I find it amazing. He says that that's achieved also through eagerness. So you, you need to want that. It's not something that comes naturally. Human beings, sinners, put in the same place together, do not tend 
to be united. It has to, you have to put effort into it. If you have siblings, you know that. If, you, if you're married, you know that. If you, if you, if you have housemates, you know that. If you, if you have yourself plus someone else, in whatever situation of your life, you know that to keep unity is not something easy. You need to be eager. It's something that you need to be active about, not passive about. That's the lifestyle. How Christians should live in unity through peace. That's what Paul is clearly saying, but how do you do that? How do, how do you achieve such an environment? An environment where everyone is united and it's as peaceful. And the virtues that Paul started to, to highlight here are to encourage or to empower Christians to live in peace and united. And the first two things that I want to highlight is the two complementary virtues, which are humility and gentleness, that are highlighted in verse 2. Paul is saying, do you want to know the secret to have a united church? A church that is connected, that stays together, that lives at peace. You need to have people who understand what it is to be humble and people who understand what it is to be gentle. Now, humility is something that sometimes gets misunderstood sometimes. Because humility is the guy that sometimes we come to him and we say, Well, you are a great guitar player. And the guy says, No, I'm not. And then we understand that that's humility. That's not what the Bible is describes it as humility. Humility is the person who does not he regard himself as special, but not just the regard, but that his actions demonstrate that. He is willing to be put in a place of a lower standard, even though he might even have a high standard. He's a person who regards others as superior. He seeks other people's interests first. That's the humble. The gentle is the one who is not abrasive, who is kind. Those two virtues, when they come together, they come together and they complement each other in a way. Humility and gentleness can be, they have some overlaps there. Those two virtues are the virtues that Paul highlights that are capable to keep a group of people, of sinners, united and at peace. Is that, isn't that amazing? Those two things. Humility and gentleness. Now he says that those two virtues have two undergirding virtues that need to be supporting them, which are patience and love. So in one way, humility and gentleness need to be exercised with patience, which means it can't happen just once. A fracture in the church only takes one moment without humility, humility to happen. So it doesn't matter if you are humble 90% of the time, because it is that 10% of the time when you are not humble that is going to cause the problem. 
So humility and gentleness need to be exercised with patience, with long-suffering. And not only that, it needs to be exercised in love, which means that the motivation that provides the source of power to do that has to be right as well. So what I'm saying is this, you're not humble and gentle because you said, oh, this is what I ought to do. But because inside of you, there is a love that it is brought about by the Holy Spirit that causes you to love, to be humble and gentle towards others because you actually love them. You don't want to harm them. You want to protect them. You want their best. If you do not have the right foundation or the right motivation for humility and gentleness, eventually you're going to snap out of it. If you do not really love your neighbor, your spouse, eventually you're not going to be humble or gentle. So humility and gentleness need to be served by patience and love. So the summary is, is a little bit more like this. Unity is, is maintained while there is peace. Right? While there is peace, unity is maintained. Now, peace is kept through the exercise of humility and gentleness at all times. You see? Unity happens where there is peace. Now, peace is kept... While people exercise humility and gentleness at all times, which means with patience, and with the right source of motivation, which means in love. That's the picture of the church. That's the lifestyle. So Paul is saying that's the lifestyle the Christians should have. Now, here I am to, to help you. Now, I've got a few questions to help you find out if you are a humble and a gentle person. Are you ready for it? You don't need to put your hand up. You don't need to answer. Okay? So you just keep it to yourself. I just got a list of questions that will help you to figure it out. Because sometimes humility and gentleness, they're very hard to find. And the opposite of it, the, sometimes it's very different, difficult to identify in our own lives. So first of all, I want to, to ask you this. Okay? So think about scenarios in your life where, where you have some measure of authority. Okay? Or scenarios in your life where you're comfortable being who you are, like at home or places. So not here at church on Sunday. That's basically what I'm saying. Okay? Because here on church on Sunday, most people are okay being humble and gentle. So not here. Think about scenarios like when you're home or when, you, when you're around people you're comfortable with. Or, position, or when you are in a position of authority that you have in you as a boss or as a pastor or as a, a husband or as a father or as a mother or something like that, okay? Think about scenarios like that. Now I've got a, a set of questions to, to give you to help you analyze that. So when faced with options and you are the first person allowed to choose, do you choose the best option for yourself? Or you choose by thinking about others who are there and taking their needs into consideration. First question to know if you're humble or kind. When faced with options and you are the first person allowed to choose, do you choose the best option for yourself? Or choose by thinking about others who are there and taking their needs into consideration before taking your own needs? 
Do you usually hurt people not so much by the content of what you say, but by the way in which you say it? When you know you are, the, you are right about a subject, do you allow time for others who disagree with you to catch up, trusting in God, He is sovereign over all? Do you find it difficult to deal with other people's recurring sins and problems? Are you willing to submit and embrace, to, and embrace, to embrace other people's points of view when you disagree with them? And here I'm not pointing to things that will violate the scriptures, okay? If you disagree with something that the Bible disagrees with, you stand by it. You don't embrace it. But I'm saying, when I talk about points of view, not sense, right? Do you find yourself forcing your way onto people in different circumstances? Do you struggle to find value in other people's contributions when their contribution is different than ours? And here, different, I mean by quantity, quality, or style. Like, you know... The contribution, of, I, 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 I contribute more than the other person does. I sing here three times a week. That person never sings. Therefore, her contribution singing from the pew every now and again is not enough. Kind of, that kind of thing. Well, the quality of it, my voice is amazing. Your voice is terrible. Okay? So your contribution is actually not helping the congregation, but I am. Or even the, the style of your contribution. Do you find it difficult to recognize or to, to find value in other people's contributions when they're different than yours? When rebuked by someone, is your first in instinct to try to justify yourself? Or rather you stop and think, is there a measure of truth in this? Do you find it easy to apologize to others even when the offense is not that serious. Hopefully a few questions. See, when you actually ask the questions in this way, it's a bit easier for us to analyze if we're humble and um, gentle, isn't it? Now, I came up with those questions because I was asking them myself. So I'm not, not putting myself above you guys here. It's quite the opposite. When I was looking, I was like, hmm. I actually fail some of these tests. What does that mean? That means that sometimes you and I, if we fail some of these tests, we can be a threat to the unity of the church. Does that make sense? Now, Paul is going to paint the portrait of what he believes is your identity that will help you to become a person who is kind and who is gentle and who is humble. Because there are three facets of the new identity that stems out from the unifying work of the triune God. There are three facets of the new identity that comes out of that unifying work of the triune God. First of all, you are a member of the body of Christ you are a servant of the Lord, and you are a child in God's family. Now, knowing that, 
should help you to live that life. See the, the links that Paul was making here? Knowing that you are a member of the body of Christ, a servant of the Lord and a child in God's family should help you to live a life that encourages unity in the bond of peace. You see that in verse, from verse 4 to verse 6. There is one body and one spirit as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. And here you see that Paul starts not with your identity, even though he tackles that, but he starts with God's identity. And here you see the perfect picture of a God who is three persons in one and who is perfectly united. Do you see that? Do you see the mention of Father, and Son, and the Spirit? So verse 4 highlights the work of the Spirit. There is one body and one Spirit. Body and one Spirit. Verse 5, one Lord, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, the God the Father. So you see the triune God playing a part. In the, so all of them distinct, but working together. So the identity of the unified God, trying to work a, uni, a work of unity among His people. So unity is all over it. The reason why unity is important is because God is a God who is united. God is not divided against itself. Lack of unity is actually a, a, a brokenness resulting from the fall. Perfect unity is the way how we describe and we display the perfect unity of God. And the church, as the new people of God, has as a responsibility to display that unity that's found in God and God Himself to begin with. And God is trying to bring about a unity in His people. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both working together to cause His people to be united. That's why the Lord Jesus prays, Father, I pray that they may be one with me and in us as we are one. Unity is not an option of the Christian life. It's something that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working intentionally about. Have a look. The work of the Spirit. There is one body and one is spirited. Spirit. And here he's saying, your identity, stemming out of it, is the identity as a member of that body. And the Spirit is working in there as the one who, who is joining the body together. Every time when Paul is talking about the different parts of the body, he's usually connected to the work of the Holy Spirit, giving different gifts to each member. So the Spirit... You know how the Spirit keeps everyone united? By giving people different gifts that other people need. So you, let me tell you something. You need my gift. Linda, I need your gift. When you sing. Evan, when you do that, I need your gift. Ev, Ev, uh, Gavin, I need your gift there as well. There are many gifts around here. The word of encouragement. So Len... When you come to the prayer meeting and encourage us all, we need your gift. Same for you, Phyllis. We need each other gifts. 
That's how God, the Spirit, has designed and has how He acts in the church. And so is the Son. Now, the identity here in verse 5, when it says, One Lord and one faith and one baptism, is identifying you as not a member of the body, is identifying you as a servant. Because there is one Lord, and the two most extreme Clear expressions of that lordship of Christ over us is faith and baptism. So faith and baptism is the way through which the Lord Jesus Christ proves, uh, provides unity to his people. What does that mean? You are not in charge. He is. How can we be united? Because we are Obedient to Jesus. And lastly, the work of the Father as, as, as the father of the family, revealing your identity as a child in God's family. You're not just a member in the body of Christ. You're not just a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you are a child in God's family. Now, the word family itself is supposed to mean unity. It's not always the case. I know that. But that's what's supposed to mean. Different people, different roles, different tastes, attitudes, but everyone united. And Father is the one who is over all, through all, and in all. Do you see that? So let me quickly apply this to you here. The work of the Spirit making you a member of the body of Christ, showing very clearly that unity is a matter of functionality. Being united is the only way the church can actually function. A church, and by that, any other gathered body of whatever we're talking about cannot function properly if they're not united. Can't happen. Just just can't happen. You're going to have fractures all over it. So what the Spirit is trying to tell you is this. And Paul uses that analogy in 1 Corinthians 12. Okay? If my eye decides to grab my cup of tea at morning tea, how do you think that's going to work? Because my, my eye doesn't think he needs my hand. Right? So I'm going to, from now on, my eye is saying, I don't actually need your hand. I'm going to do the job without you. So I will type my sermon by myself. <laughs> so see how unity is a matter of functionality. And you don't need to go long. You just ask people who have to face severe disabilities to know that it is very difficult to function when there is a part of your body that's not working properly. Unity is a matter of functionality. We need to be unified, otherwise we cannot function as we are supposed to function. Unity is also a matter of obedience, and that's why we describe Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the one faith and the one baptism. Now let me tell you this, out of the back here, unity is not an option. Be eager to maintain that unity in the church is not an option. 
God wants that for His church. And you as His servant needs to obey Him and strive to maintain that bond of peace that establishes unity. It's, it's, it's not up to a discussion. We're not sitting down and discussing, should we be united? Does that make sense? It's not up to discussion. We ought to be united. And lastly, unity is a matter of relationships. Very beautifully de de uh, depicted by God as the father of the family. Unity is a matter of relationships between one another. And as God designed the people of God, He not designed us just to function. He doesn't design us just to obey. He designed us to enjoy one another. As a mother enjoys his daughter, as a sister enjoys his brother, as an uncle enjoys his auntie, as a grandfather enjoys his grandchildren, you cannot have healthy relationships without unity. You cannot have a healthy family without unity. You cannot have a healthy church without unity. Because relationships are going to be shattered. And that's the first thing that happens when unity is broken. Unity is broken. It's almost equal to broken relationships. Almost equal. So this is my challenge to us today, to be a united people, and that unity will only take place if there is peace, and that peace will only happen if we have gentleness and humility, being served by uh, long-suffering and love, because we are members of the body of Christ, because we are servants of God. And because we are all children in his family. That's why. So if you like me were challenged by this message, I'll pray now. And I'll pray that God will do that work that Paul was praying for last week. Remember? Because those works of unity, they're impossible to us by ourselves. We need God's help to overcome and to be able to live that life. Thank you.